This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. The Metaphysical Connection is brought to you by our sponsors, the Trinity Whip Company, handcrafted whips by Blake Brunning. Incredible form as well as function. TrinityWhipCo.com We are also brought to you by Chester Cordite, modern vintage menswear inspired by the golden age of the 1930s and 40s. ChesterCordite.com Landron Artifacts is a place to go for your amazing wall reliefs that were inspired by set designs for motion pictures such as Raiders of the Lost Ark, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Aliens, and of course, the originals created by the Aztecs, Mayans, and Olmecs. Add ancient mystery and intrigue with his products by going to LandronArtifacts.com. Don't forget the friends of our show, Recreating History and Penman Hats. You can find out more about our sponsors and the Metaphysical Connection by going to our homepage, metaphysicalpodcast.com, or join our group, facebook.com slash groups slash The Metaphysical Connection. This is The Metaphysical Connection, Episode 60. I'm your host, Carol Fisk. This time, Professor Walt Schnabel and my husband, Eric, talk with our very special guest, author of the Mojave Incident, Ron Felber. This is one of the most notable events in ufology, ufology, ufology. Who writes these scripts anyway? The science of UFOs, thanks to elements of the story that are both plausible and believable. Then the story evolves into a genuine close encounter that opens the realms of possibilities that several different alien species are visiting us, a timetable into disclosure, and gives us possible explanation about the ultimate questions. What do they want, and why are they so curious about us humans? Thanks for listening, and while you're enjoying the show, don't forget to join us on the Metaphysical Connection Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash the Metaphysical Connection. Hey, good morning, Ron. It's it's Eric Fisk. How you doing there, Eric? Hey, not bad. Um, also, here in the background, I have uh, my, my co-host, Walt Schnabel. What do you mean in the background? In the uh, foreground. Diminish my presence right off the bat, Eric. <laughs> uh, that's, 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 <laughs> we, we're, we're, we, we joke around a lot, Ron. We're, we're, we kind of like to enjoy the show and have fun, so... Uh, Why not? Just, just, yeah, just just setting you up for, <laughs> for the way we do things. So <laughs> we kind of... We trade jobs back and forth we won't send you any but we, we just we, that's just our no we our, our routine that we go through we, you know? we treat our guests with the uttermost respect right. because but uh we we may not be the the best podcast about the paranormal but we, we i think that we are the funniest and not intentionally so we take our we take our topics serious not serious not ourselves exactly <laughs> so um anyway it's, it's great to to have you join us today um we really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to to come and talk about some things that i think our, our listeners are going to be really interested in um i i guess we should start by by having you maybe just talk a little bit about yourself so our listeners are familiar with who you are and what you do 
Um, I, I've seen a couple interviews that you've done, and they were, I saw one on uh, Beyond Belief, and, and I listened to the show you did on Coast to Coast. Uh, both were, were really good, um, really, really entertaining. And so we'd like to bring some of that material forward to our, to our listeners today. Um, just as a background, I know that you're a, you're a Jersey guy like me. Uh, did you grow up in New Jersey or? Yeah, I did. As a matter of fact, um, I grew up, I, I grew up in Newark. And, oh, you did? Uh, St. Yeah. Benedict's Prep in the Central Ward. And then um, my parents moved when I went to college to Madison, New Jersey. Uh huh. I grew up in Denellen, which um, you're probably familiar with. Um, sure. Huh. It's a little, little tiny central New Jersey town, and, uh, it, and where um, are you now? Where do you live now? Uh, we're in New Hampshire. Oh. Er, uh-huh. er, Eric and I are both New Hampshireites now. Uh, although yeah. Eric started life in Vermont. Um, uh, uh, unfortunately uh, for him, <laughs> <laughs> there's always a back and forth between New Hampshire and Vermont as to it's which is huge the more, rivalry, which is the more progressive state. But yeah, uh, anyway, I won't ask you where New Jersey fits into that equation. Yeah, well, it's it's that's that's a distant land now for me. But um, I I did I did live in New Jersey up until about 20 years ago, so yeah. I, I I have strong New Jersey roots still. And uh, I know you I know you must have spent some uh, some of your misspent youth down at the Jersey Shore, as I did, sure. um, banging those pleasure machines, as, as Bruce Springsteen says. Um, so anyway, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a connection we have. And, and don't um, forget Carol. Don't forget my wife, Carol, okay, who is also... Right. Eric's wife is from New Jersey. Is too, also so from New got Jersey. A strong so. New Jersey connection going here. So, so anyway, we'd like, to, we'd like to start out by talking about your, your work on um, the Mojave incident, which mm-hmm. um, to me is is a pretty incredible account of, of a UFO experience. Um, it, it's just, it, it's got so many unusual twists and turns in it. And, and I, I can see that, I know that you're, you're not only a, um, a nonfiction writer, but you're also a fiction writer. And, and yeah, that's the real deal, the real deal. Right. And, and I always like to see that because I think nonfiction sometimes tends to be a little dry. Uh, but in your case, it, the, the, the Mojave incident reads like a story, you know, yeah. it, it's got drama, it's got all the things attached to fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, do you, do you teach creative writing? I think I read that in your... Yeah, I do. I teach uh, creative writing at uh, Drew University. At Drew, right. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know where that is. Um, well, so, be- so, the, so the book really, in some ways, reads like a, you know, like a, like a story, which is what really drags drags the reader along well, let's let's get back to let's go back to the beginning um ron um what how how did you find out about the mojave incident and what caused you to actually write the book yeah i i was um in business for a number of years so i was running a, a company and uh, we had a sales force that uh, was uh, throughout north america and one of the fellows that uh, i hired was from california his name was paul moran and he um had played uh, varsity football at the University of Redland. So actually over time we became pretty good friends and I lived on the East Coast, but when I was out on the West Coast, we'd have dinner, we'd work together, have dinner afterwards. And uh, so he told me about a friend, a best friend of his that uh, he played football with who had had uh, this uh, experience. He, He didn't tell me what kind of experience, just a shocking sort of experience that changed his life. And then um, basically, he told me that the fellow and his wife didn't really want to talk about it, that they'd kind of kept it to themselves. So, of course, one thing leads to another, and he, he told me more about the story. 
and uh, he wanted to sort of put us together because he felt that it would be sort of uh, cathartic or good for these this couple who was was really uh, damaged by the experience psychologically and, and even physically uh, to, to, to tell the story. And uh, he thought it would be good for me because he knew I, I would like the story that it was a, a, you know, a phenomenal one. And so he did put us together and reluctantly they, uh, they confided the story. They told no one for um, about a year. They told their parents, which they were disappointed. Their parents were, were not as supportive as they would have liked. They, they just, you know, UFOs, alien abductions, particularly uh, in 1989 when this happened, it just wasn't uh, as uh, accepted, the whole concept. These concepts weren't as accepted as they are now. And so the parents were something like, well, if we know something happened to you and we know that there was some misunderstanding that probably happened. And this was such an intense experience from their standpoint uh, to have it trivialized. You know, well, we know something happened to you, but it probably wasn't that was not what they wanted to hear. And they decided that if their their own parents weren't, uh, you know, weren't able to to believe in what they're saying 100 percent, they should just keep it to themselves. So they did until until they confided the experience to Paul, who was his best friend, and then me um, sometime later. So so this uh, this kind of um, topic, UFOs and, and, and that kind of thing, wasn't really what you did at that point. Um, I mean, I'm not saying you weren't interested in it, but it, it really wasn't the, the body of your of your writing up to that point. Is that is that true? Oh, absolutely. Really, what um, I'd been writing at the time, I, I was writing the Nick Carter series, which is a sort of spy novels and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I'd written a, uh, a, a business book on uh, leadership and exec- executive leadership. I'd written um, a book about uh, a, a nonfiction book about a drug dealer uh, in Burma. So I was doing research along those lines. And I wrote another book called The Privacy War about privacy and J. Edgar Hoover in, in the United States during the 1960s. So a UFO book or alien abduction was really far, far afield for me. And when I first heard about it, I said, look, I'll meet these people because, you know, they're probably nice people. They're, this is your best friend. I'll, I'd be glad to meet him. But I don't have any interest in writing the story. And when I met them and saw how credible they were and what a what a, uh, a uh, specific and uh, and broad and deep uh, story this was, I realized that, that probably there was never a story or an account like this ever written. And so, of course, at that point, it became you know it became of interest to me, and um, I was dragged into the story myself. I found it. Uh, be really compelling one of the things that sort of struck me about the entire story mm-hmm. is that it does it 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 sort of echoes um uh, striver's book communion which talks about abductions but it also it's also very unique in the fact that it was like whatever paradigm you believe in whether or not you believe in spirits or government conspiracies or whatever your stories you can you can plug in whatever it is you believe in because from what i understand whoever abducted these people or whatever abducted this couple while they were camping is sort of is it still sort of ambiguous or are we saying that it was absolutely positively aliens well i mean there are a couple takes on this and and it depends you know where you're coming from uh yourself you know it's sort of like uh, the observer has a lot to do with with uh, how they interpret things. I mean, 
I, I would say what uh, Dr. William Annixter, who uh, was the, uh, the psychiatrist who retrogressed them, and uh, Dr. Vitone, who, uh, who examined them in, in uh, Washington, D.C., was the director of the National Center of Psychiatry. Basically, what they came up with is when you look at the possibilities, they would include something like, all right, a, a massive misunderstanding, drugs and hallucinations, uh, fabrication, meaning they made the story up uh, for, I don't know, money or fame or something like that, or that they had uh, personalities that, uh, that uh, were prone to fantasy. All of those things could be eliminated one by one. And so you're left with, um, you're left with the, the very probable uh, explanation that what they say happened to them is what happened to them. And yeah, they were abducted by aliens. Okay. I know one of the, one of the things for me that, that really contributes to the legitimacy of it any uh, of the story is the fact that they didn't um, jump to to bring it out you know right away to try to capitalize on it that that always looks a little suspicious to me when somebody automatically tries to you know bring this forward they, they kind of seems like they kind of sat on it and and really came out with it reluctantly um, to the point where they. Uh, didn't didn't you originally not use their real names in um, in the original in the, in the original version? Yeah, yeah th that's correct. And um, the the other thing is that that uh, that uh, the the man involved and uh, uh, Steve Hess will we'll use that name because there were two. But let's use Steve and Dawn Hess um, was a project manager for a construction company that made shopping malls. So there's a guy that had you know staff underneath him. It was upwardly mobile. They had two children at the time, two young children at the time, a stay-at-home mom, both college graduates, again, a, a varsity football player and um, uh, a star football player. Uh, so this is a guy that, that was on a career track. This was a fellow that was upwardly mobile. He owned a home, you know, uh, trying to get ahead in the world. The last thing he needed, wanted, or uh, desired was was an alien abduction experience because uh, career-wise particularly then and probably now still this isn't the kind of thing that says okay fine we have uh, 20 million dollars to build a a, uh, a shopping mall or a strip mall let's let a guy be in charge of it that says he was uh, abducted by aliens it doesn't it doesn't work that way and so he had every reason in the world not to want this to happen and every reason in the world not to really talk about it so I mean, for for me, that right there says a lot because there are so many people who are in a huge hurry to exploit what happened to them. Um, I'm sure that I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, Mr. Fire in the Sky. Um, Travis Walton. Travis, Travis Walton. Walton yeah. Travis Walton. A lot of people have accused him on, of, of capitalizing on his experience. And the fact that he was fascinated with the concept of UFOs before his abduction didn't help matters any right. at all. And, and usually when, when you mention to somebody that, you know, oh, somebody told me they were abducted by aliens, they give you a look like, oh, yeah, right. Sure, know? right. And then that's generally the reaction that you get. Although that, that's changing slightly, I think. I think yeah. probably when this happened, you said it was in 89, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that's correct. You yeah. know, the, the viewpoint on aliens and 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 UFO abductions and things like that has changed, I think, drastically since then, where people are becoming more accepting of it. And that may be part of some larger disclosure movement. I don't know. But um, would you would you agree to that, Ron? Or um... Oh, no, absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, if uh, under the uh, 
it, during the retrogressive sessions, uh, Dawn has had a lot to say about that. And uh, one of the things that she said was that um, that there was a uh, a life form, alien life form that, that wanted to make contact, that had uh, been observing uh, human behavior for a long time, that they didn't have emotions like we do. And so that's one of the reasons that these abductions happened. And that's one of the reasons in the back of this camper, uh, this couple was put through uh, a roller coaster of uh, psychological experiences that uh, created fear, that created uh, joy, that created uh, um, uh, uh, avarice, that created any emotion very deeply that you could imagine. And that basically uh, there was a progression to desensitize people so that when there was a, uh, a, uh, a widespread contact, that people wouldn't uh, be hysterical about it. And if you look at, at uh, the original pictures of UFOs, like say in Life magazine or Look magazine back in the, uh, in the late 50s, these are very grainy pictures of something that looks like a saucer. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the, the phrase flying saucer came from. A fellow took photos from out of a plane and you have these grainy photos of a sort of a, a black object uh, that's uh, fuzzy, but saucer-like. So since that time, of course, you have things like the Phoenix Lights, where the governor of, um, of Arizona, uh, Fife Symington, talked about seeing a, a UFO along with his son and thousands of others the size of a football field. And this is a, a guy that was a, a fighter pilot in Vietnam that was a, a, a private pilot beyond that. So he was very familiar with what, you know, uh, experimental craft would look like. So in other words, there's been a, a giant progression. And then you have uh, Betty Barney Hill in the 1960s, early 1960s, who claimed the first alien abduction experience that uh, was recovered through retrogressive uh, hypnosis. And then you have things like this uh, experience with Stephen Dawn Hess, where it's almost like a curtain is drawn and a, and a whole new reality is, is uh is brought to light and exposed. Point being that as time goes on, these uh, experiences seem to get more in focus, broader, and more uh, demonstrable, more in your face. So that that what Dawn Hess says under hypnosis is that uh, when will this contact happen? The doctor asks. He, she says, I don't know. He says, well, in my lifetime. She says, well, how long will you live? Mm -hmm. And he says, he says, well, in my children's lifetime. And she says, yes, in your children's lifetime. I buy that. I think there'll be a major, a major breakthrough in terms of, uh, of um, hum human existence and its place in the universe, it, certainly within the next 50 years. <clears throat> I'm kind of hoping that'll too, happen. Too late for me, probably. Well, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that'll happen <laughs> sooner than that. But because um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that there, there is, there has been so many other stories that have sort of come to light lately. Before we we actually brought you into the show, Walt and I were talking about of all things. What, are we celebrating the 70th anniversary of Roswell? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah 1949, I think. Yeah, that and the thing 47, is... 47, so yeah, it would be 70. Uh -huh. So the thing is, is that so much has changed in 70 years. Where where do you think that Roswell fits in all of this? Only be, I only bring it up because this mm -hmm. weekend is the, is the anniversary of it. 
You know, I, I find um, Roswell uh, interesting, but unlike a lot of other people, I don't think it's nearly the most compelling story at all. I mean, because time went by and and um, uh, it only got brought really to the public light. There was a headline or so that, that uh, the government says was a misstep. And knowing the government, that's entirely possible. But um, but when people actually started to step forward and what I was a number of years later, I mean, I think the most compelling stories are just airline pilots that say they were tracked by a UFO for mm-hmm. and it's tracked on radar. Mm-hmm. People see it, you know, so you have have verification from a number of different angles. And they, these guys are guys that are experienced with seeing things in the sky. So they know, exactly. you know, what, what various things are. They know what Venus. I'll tell you yeah. a, a, another thing that I find very compelling, again, is uh, Fife Symington in, uh, in 1977. You have Jimmy Carter, the former president who was governor at the time in 1973, filed a report uh, with the Navy about, a, you know, a self-luminous uh, light. It created daylight around it. It was witnessed with dozens of others. He was at a Rotary Club meeting in, uh, in um, Atlanta. Ronald Reagan had two experiences, one in 1974 while he was uh, in a Cessna and another uh, flying and another with his wife, Nancy, um, going to a party uh, from Sacramento, going to a party in Malibu. And uh, they 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 followed uh, a UFO uh, for a number of miles and then watched it take off, uh, take off at a tremendous rate of speed. And so these are these are two presidents. This is a a governor that. that uh, you know, responsible people. I find that very compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you don't have to reach back to 1947. I mean, th- these are things you're talking about in the in the 1990s, 1980s, 1970s, that were witnessed by dozens and in some cases thousands of people. And uh, you know, you you could have one person or ten people, I suppose, uh, misunderstand something. But a lot like with the Hesses. If you have a prolonged experience of, you know, 15 hours, let's say six or seven of them conscious, another six or seven that are brought back by uh, retro through retrogression, and we have people literally pinching one another, saying, "Do you see this?" You know, moment to moment, second to second, they're tracking back and forth as to what they see. Um, you know, th- this is this is eyewitness. This is. Um, not a, a flash in the sky. These are sustained experiences with great detail, a lot of specifics, and uh, people that are traumatized for the rest of their lives. The uh, Hesses, um, according to Dr. Vitone, again, director of the Center of uh, National Psychiatry in Washington, D.C., said that uh, they were experiencing um, insomnia, sexual dysfunction, uh, paranoia, etc., much as a POW would. Uh, a prisoner of war that had been through a, uh, a, you know, an incredibly traumatic experience. So I find th- these things very compelling. And again, you don't have to reach back to, uh, you know, 60 years or whatever to, to, to find them. They're, and as a matter of fact, they're much less ambiguous and much more specific, much more duration, and uh, many more witnesses, many of whom are, you know, like police officers, mm-hmm. airline pilots, um, uh, military people. Uh, so, so those are the ones I find, you know, a lot more, uh, I won't say credible because I think that they're all credible in their way, but 
but more there. I mean, there's more to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's important, I think. The complexity, the the specifics of it, the duration of it. Those are the things I find very compelling these days. Ron, can you you, uh, give our listeners a kind of an overview, I guess, of, of what actually happened to the Hesses and, um, you know, without divulging too much from your book, because I'm guessing a number of them are going we want to go out and buy read, your book. We, we want people to go out um, and buy this book. Uh, but can you give us an overview of, of what their experience actually was? And it's pretty incredible. I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about it. And to me, it's it's one of, <laughs> it's, it's one of the most intriguing UFO stories that I've ever heard. And, I, and I've heard a lot of them. So, so, can you, so can you give us a little bit of that? Sure. What their experience was? Basically, the, the way this went, and again, this, this is what makes it so credible, I think. You have a, a, a young couple in their uh, early 30s. So they have two young children. So the husband has a stressful job, uh, you know, in construction and a lot of responsibility, working a lot of hours. So he wants to take a break. His uh, wife is uh, with young children. And uh, at some point in time, I think every young mother just wants to get away from the kids, be with adults, and, and have some quiet time or some fun, adult fun. So they're in that situation. They get uh, uh, Steve. Steve's parents uh, agreed to babysit uh, for a, a night or two. Uh, Steve want, is a hunter, so he had, um, the season before, missed a shot at a, at a mule deer in uh, the Mojave. So he was with his father and his brother, and if you have siblings and you know how that goes. So the brother gave him a relentless hard time about missing the shot. <laughs> Being a, uh, a former football player and somebody that's competitive, he said, you know, I'm going back and uh, I'm going to make this right. So he wanted to go hunting. and uh, Bring back a head of a mule deer to <laughs> prove it to them. <laughs> exactly. And then the wife, of course, just says, look, I want to go out. I want to listen to some music. I want to have a nice dinner. I want to do some dance. I want to dance a little bit. I want to I want to break loose and have some fun. So what they do is to decide to go uh, do both. So on the way into the Mojave, there's a place called Whiskey Pete's, which uh, is sort of a, a dance club. They have, uh, you know, some steaks and things of that nature. They have a live band. So they decide to go to Whiskey Pete's. Then afterwards, what they'll do a short distance from there is the Mid Hills uh, campsite. So they'll take their camper. Uh, spend the night there, and then in the morning, the idea was to go into the East Mojave and to, uh, he'll, he'll do his hunting. So they'll both get what they want, they'll go back home, he'll have his deer, she'll have her good night out, uh, and they'll, they'll go uh, back to their home and, and, and uh, live their lives again with, with children, etc. So what happens is they do go to Whiskey Pete's, but uh, when they go to Mid-Hills uh, campsite, unusual for the time, which would have been October, mm-hmm. They uh, find it's completely sold out. So reluctantly, uh, they decide to go right into the Mojave and uh, say, okay, fine. What we'll do is uh, have our, a couple of steaks. We'll make a fire. Steve is a bit of a, a woodsman. You know, he, he knows how to, uh, to, to live in the wild a bit. So he, they go, and this is a very rough terrain. Um, it's near uh, Sema Dome and uh uh, tabletop mountain and um, th- these are areas where uh, a lot of uh, rare earths and uh, exotic metals are mined by Alumax etc a lot of these uh, things like lanthanum and whatnot are used for um, uh, laser weaponry and a lot of uh, aerospace uh, construction so 
Long story short, that they, they get there. Uh, Dawn, the wife, is uh, feeling uneasy because it's so desolate. She's uh, read or heard about, you know, motorcycle gangs that do drug deals in the desert and whatnot, and not feeling particularly uh, good about that, and maybe a little annoyed at, uh, at Steve for, for having this section of the trip and combining them. So Steve, uh, they make a, a campfire. Uh, they have a couple of steaks. Actually, they're feeding the, these kangaroo rats that are with bread, pieces of bread, and laughing about that, looking at the stars. All of a sudden, um, they notice it, the desert turns quiet, deadly quiet. Steve glances over his, his shoulder and almost peeking from behind the mountain is, is a UFO. And by that, I mean a craft uh, about 30 feet in diameter that just sort of peeks out. Dawn doesn't see it because she has her back uh, to it. The thing goes out. It sends a chill down his spine because when he was a, a kid, maybe seven years old, he'd been fishing and he and a friend had had a UFO experience, meaning they had seen a UFO, run back to their parents who, who were camping, told them about it. And of course, the parents you know, had a good laugh because, uh, you know, they, they're having a good time. Kids come back. Oh, we're fishing and we saw a, a flying saucer. Mm -hmm. It's not, not, the, not so credible from a parent's point of view, but it stuck in his mind. And when he saw this and it, it dipped back behind the mountain, it uh, sent a chill down his spine. And like it was yesterday, that memory from when he was seven just flashes in his mind. I think, want to I think that's an important element, Ron, because a, a lot of people ex who are experiencers right. have multiple experiences. And I think there might be something behind that. Like, 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 like they're they, being selected or something. Like he, like this kid was picked out, and they've been. Could they have been tracking him all of this time? Is there any signs of any kind of implants or anything like that? Um, no, not 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 for him. But um, actually, Dawn, after this experience, uh, and, and during the hypnotic session, was pawing at her neck, uh, and the doctor says, "Why are you pawing? You know, what, what are you doing with your neck? Why are you touching your neck like that?" And uh, she she just bursts out with the word implant. Huh. And um, interesting. So so the idea of uh, this not being a coincidence, uh, you know, resonates. It, that, that's very mm -hmm. possible. Yeah. yeah, it does. So the thing is, so getting getting back to the story here. So so um, Steve has this flashback, and then and then what happens? So basically, um, they look out. They're looking at stars at the time. And so Steve is pointing out different configurations, and uh, he says, well, that over there is a double star. You can see it shines brighter, and if you look closely, you can see. So Dawn says, well, if this is a double star, this must be a triple star. Because there's a particular light over the mountain top, which is uh, maybe 500, 600 yards away, and um, the one becomes nine. And all of a sudden, there are nine brilliantly glowing objects that form the configuration of an M over the top of the mountain. And uh, so Steve says, well, maybe it's experimental craft or this or that, weather balloons or, or whatever. But then they start blinking to one another in what seemed to be coordinated uh, communication patterns. And then the, the nine become hundreds. And um, the sky now is filled with these, these bright, glowing orbs. 
they start dropping to the ground. And again, this is very rough terrain. And, um, and when they hit the ground, they uh, start to see each become like a, a, a being with red eyes. So they see now thousands of pairs of red eyes glowing in the dark, piercing the night and, and uh, racing toward them. Now, again, the terrain being what it is, nothing's going to race towards them. That isn't extraordinary because you're dealing with, you know, a very rocky terrain, mm -hmm. uh, scrub brush all over the place, cactus, etc. So nothing's going to be rushing that that you would be aware of in terms of a conventional craft or a conventional uh, mode of, uh, of uh, transportation. So now they know that something awful is happening and they think it's an invasion. They think it's like the Russians have invaded. Steve goes to the camper. He gets... Um, uh, a rifle and a shotgun, which he was using, you know, for hunting the next uh, the next day, and he's ready to to start shooting. And um, Dawn grabs his arm and says, "Don't you hear what they're telling you? Don't don't try to harm them, or they'll kill us. They want us to get in the back of the camper." So this is a sort of telepathic message that's very very strong and profound. Steve hears it too, and then sort of like zombies, they just go in a daze to the back of the camper. They sit there Indian style, uh, Steve with a shotgun across his lap, two um, like fire hydrant type um, apparatus or whatever are there at the lip of the camper. When he tries to get out, they have a jolt of electricity. So they're trapped there. And the jolt is so, so strong that when he tries to move forward, it, it throws him back. So they, they then um, see these, uh, these beings, and the, they're a couple of type of beings. And this is, again, what makes it extraordinary, I think. These uh, first type are, are almost like, um, like diabolical, small, malevolent, glowing red eyes. Um, they're in a frenzy. They're like frolicking almost but not in a nice way, in a malevolent sort of way. And the more afraid the Hesses become, the more agitated they become, meaning they're climbing on the camper, they're in the trees, they're all around. So it's almost like they're feeding on their fear, sort of? Exactly. Yeah, interesting. Then, um, <clears throat> then they, they see a, a shining um, a, a probe of light that's maybe 200 feet in diameter, sort of combing the desert basin, and they look up, and much much like uh, Fife Symington, the, the former governor of Arizona, they talk about a craft that literally caps the valley. So when I asked him, I said, so this was like a, a big object, like maybe 100 feet in diameter? He goes, no, this was the size of a football field. This was enormous. Mm-hmm. And something that anyone would, would say could never fly. But it caps the valley and it's over them now. And, um, and so now they see this UFO. They have these uh, beings that they call gremlins, uh, sort of malevolent beings, almost like, um, um, like monkeys or, or gremlins or whatever you'd want to refer to them as. But then they're, they're surrounded. The camper becomes surrounded by nine illuminated beings and these are much different they're um maybe five foot five five foot six 
They have uh, the um, the torsos and, and body of, of maybe a five-year-old. Dark eyes, big dark eyes. Uh, Dawn says without parts. They don't have parts like a human would have a cornea and an iris. Mm -hmm. Just um, just these black eyes that seem to be like funnels almost, and uh, not human. And um, three fingers. Um, long distended hands and, and arms and legs. And uh, these are like clinicians, like scientists. Will these be like greys, Ron? I was thinking um, the same thing. The, yeah. Uh, the yeah, typical kind of greys that you hear described. Interestingly <clears throat> enough, when they described them, I had looked at a book after this, uh, after I'd uh, had the interview, and uh, Time Life put out a, a book called Mystical Places. And mm, in the book, that. I was leafing through it. I was in a doctor's office leafing through it. And uh, one of the mystical places was the Mojave. And... Um, the uh, Paiute Indians, five, six, seven hundred years ago, did cave drawings, petroglyphs, and they were identical in terms of what the drawings look like to what the Hesses described. More to the point, there's a, a, a land drawing uh, called the Mojave Twins that can only be seen from the air. And uh, you want to look that up on the Internet or something. That's exactly what they described. So I found that to be, again, a pretty compelling uh, in a correlation, but from there, these nine beings, um, as I said, are like scientists. Uh, treat them like like laboratory animals. They're put through uh, a series of um, psychological experiences. So, for example, and I don't I don't want to get into this too too much, but um, the, uh, the the woman involved had uh, had had been molested as a child and had a, a pretty awful experience. Uh, molested by a stranger and um, so she was forced to relive that experience but not relive it like a memory relive it like it was really happening and she was that little girl again um, Steve who was a hunter had the experience of being hunted like the deer that he would hunt wounded, shot, gutted those kind of horrific experiences as well as others uh, lost, for example, in the camper. Um, so some uh, exaltation, like when he was a football player and, uh, and uh, you know, had had a great experience. So this roller coaster of experiences that each are going through one at a time, back and forth, alternating, and um, to the point where they thought they were having heart attacks many times during all of this. They thought they were in hell, that they had died and were in hell. And when they thought they were on the verge of cardiac arrest, a kind of mist would float into the into the camper, like a fog almost, that uh, would calm them, would sedate them. And their pulse would come down again, their breathing, which was shallow and fast, would start to be normal again. And it was almost like scientists keeping alive a laboratory experiment. They didn't want it to die because they, they wanted to do more experiments. I, I and, think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Ron, I think, I think I found that part of the story probably the most disturbing. Um, the fact that they, it seemed like they were able to probe these people's memories in, yeah. in some way yeah. and dredge up these things. And, and also, and not only, like you said, not just like a memory, like you would think about something, but a, an actual almost experience, re-experience of it. And that's, 
that's pretty uh, <laughs> that that that's pretty malevolent when that, you think about doing nefarious. that to somebody and that's... and that kind of proves that they probably don't have any real true emotional um makeup or or compun- you know compunction for for um but people's that's, feelings but that's the reason like that. why that's the reason why they were doing these well, experiments well yeah yeah but that's that's disturbing that's that's that produces a lot of fear for me if somebody and, well, if well in terms were, of the mother i mean she she thought her children were in danger Grave danger. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's, so, so these are really um, visceral, you know, seminal, in your gut experiences. Right. That are, so actually, um, I call that section of the book mind tear, because that's what what they were describing was like somebody just tearing your mind apart. You're tearing the essence of who you are apart, piece by piece. And uh, you're right. I mean, uh, sometimes physical pain is a lot easier to go through than that kind of mental anguish where you're afraid your children are are being uh, harmed, et cetera. That's you know? the worst. That's yeah. the worst. So then, um, so now we have two types of beings that I've described. So then, imagine all this is going on at the same time, simultaneous. In the meantime, there's a what they called a searcher. And the searcher was kind of a, a triangular um call it a craft, that was combing the desert basin and drilling almost. Like they could feel the vibration, a tremendous vibration underneath the truck and in the valley generally. They uh, smelled like sulfur, phosphorus, this heavy odor of, uh, of chemicals or, or sulfur. And uh, they were convinced that some mining operation was going on, that, that maybe this craft was looking for or, or mining some kind of elements or some kind of rare earths that uh, that were important to them, maybe for refueling or maybe for maybe for um, getting back to where they needed to get back to. But one way or the other, uh, so all of this is going on at the same time. So it's almost like an orchestrated thing, uh, uh, this huge uh, um, landscape of activities. So Finally, they, they really are convinced that uh, that they have died or are dying. They never thought they would survive this. And uh, they feel like they're on the verge of just uh, going mad. And a third type of being enters the, enters the scene. And it's almost um, an angelic figure. So they see like this swirling sort of cloud that becomes the shape of a woman almost like a Marian visitation, like Lourdes, Fatima, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, they're convinced it's feminine, just the, the whole presence was a feminine presence. And they called this their comforter. Since there are no names for these things, they invented names. You know, the illuminated beings were the, the clinical scientists that I talked about. The gremlins were these little malevolent beings that they'd seen. And this was a comforter. They, they called this woman... They, called it a comforter because it was saying to them you're not going to die you're not dead you'll survive this um everything will be all right so so don't don't panic be comforted and um it it, it was very evident that this was a, a being that this was a kind of like marian visitation at that point they get very sleepy they feel the, the truck, the entire truck and the landscape around them as if it's drilled out of the ground going up into the craft. And um, they remember lights and struggling, 
physically struggling. Steve remembers physically struggling, but then nothing else. They wake up the next morning. The campfire is out. They're outside the camper on the ground. And, um, and uh, that's all they remember. They think the world has ended. They turn the radio on looking for radio reports. And, you know, they hear some country western songs. And they're shocked that, that there isn't some emergency broadcast going on. They go to find an elderly couple that are a few miles away. They ask gingerly if they'd seen anything. And they said, no, they, you know, they turned in early that night, et cetera, because they were getting up early. And so they didn't see or hear anything. And then they, they go back and they have this tremendous fear that they're being followed, that this, uh, this triangular searcher, they called it, this triangular craft is following them. They, they just are, have a tremendous sense of uh, dread and paranoia. And uh, the rest of the experience happened after I met them. And um, they had these awful nightmares and a couple of experiences with their children at home. Um, and then they were retrogressed uh, by uh, Dr. Uh, uh, William Annixter. And, um, and uh, the rest of the story uh, unfolded uh, about their time on the craft and what they think the beings were there for, why they, uh, why they were abducted, etc. But uh, that's the gist of the story. And some of the uh, hypnotic sessions, I think, are, are just you know, incredibly, incredibly powerful. The, uh, the the event almost, to me, seems like it was an expeditionary force of some kind, you know, that it was multifaceted. There are many layers to it, which which is what makes this story so remarkable, I think. Yeah. You don't often hear about this kind of an event. Usually it's, you know, somebody, uh, uh, a UFO comes down and, and abducts somebody and they're taken somewhere and then they put back into their life and, and that's kind of usually the way it goes. But this is, this is much more of... Um, elaborate event than, yeah. than that and and it seems like this had a, <clears throat> a major impact on their lives doesn't seem like something that ordinary people you know somebody who works in construction and a homemaker would create would, would no, create no, i mean that's it's it's much too much too much convoluted. too elaborate yeah which is here's a here's an issue that i have with the entire story mm -hmm. on a on a very personal level mm -hmm. um so this this incident happened in october so coincidentally, in October of 89, my father and I were driving across country and and I was just looking at the map and and right around this time, we also passed through the Mojave Desert. And one of the things I'm curious about is why them and not us? You know, <laughs> well, that's a good question, I think. Uh, you know, the, I, I'm reading a, currently reading a book by a, a guy named Grant Cameron. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with his work or not, but. Um, it's and it's about disclosure and the and the government's role. Yeah, in that. yeah. And uh, the point, one of the points that he makes is that, and, and I think it's a good one, is that there's a big ESP component, extrasensory component yeah, yeah. to this. Um, and I, I think it sounds to me like both of them may have had some of that kind of ability, right. and and maybe those are the kind of people that sort of get chosen or get selected because they are more vulnerable which in, brings in some me way, which or? brings me back to my original question right. why them and, and well that's and, what i'm getting why at. Us? What, what do you think about why that Ron? Us? you have any, well, any actually, sense let, of that let me read to you something from the transcript would you like to hear yeah that? go ahead oh, sure. yeah. absolutely absolutely so the doctor this is dr william annister says do you don do you have any idea what these beings want or why they're here 
So I'll read right from uh, the book. It was macabre watching as Dawn sprang up in her chair, suddenly animated and alert. Her voice, rather than soft and emotional, took on a new cadence, which was clipped and direct, quite unlike her. Quote, they want to make contact with the population. Steve and I are specimens, imperfect like the human race. When we're ready to communicate with them face to face, then possibly the world will be too. Unquote. Her actions, such as edging forward in her chair at the moment, seemed mechanical, as did her voice as she continued. Quote, they have to study our reactions so they know how to approach us. They don't have emotions like ours, so they need us to teach them. They need to understand humans, unquote. Do you have a sense as to who they are and where they come from? The doctor asks. Quote, there are five galaxies. Theirs is the next closest. In order for all galaxies to work together one day, they have to start, and they're starting with us, so we'll be united galaxies, unquote. What else do you know? Annixter asked, feeling as if he was in contact with someone other than Dawn. Quote, I know where the universe ends. She said, rattling the words off in staccato fashion. Is that something you can put into words? Now there was no denying it. Something incredible was happening. Quote, our universe ends where theirs begins. Our universe ends when all its matter stops mattering to us and starts mattering to them. Now, I'll tell you, you know, obviously I, I was there for this session and if you look at the play on words, and this is something that just comes right out of her mouth, no us, us, no thought. Our universe ends where theirs begins. Our universe ends when all its matter stops mattering to us and starts mattering to them. Isn't that an incredible turn of phrase? I find it. It, it is. You know, it is. really is. It, it sort of really says it all in some ways, you know, yeah. about the whole thing. It says everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an, it is an amazing um, phra phraseology it, it, it really is and it and it, it that it it almost seems to me like they must have kind of implanted it that in her or it, it almost seems from what you're describing like another personality coming right. out in some sense right um, yeah. that that may have been put into her psyche somehow you know during the course of this whole right uh, now now were they ever were they, they were they taken aboard a, a craft um at some Absolutely. point Yes. Uh-huh. I, I think I remember you saying there was like a sort of like a tractor beam that that brought them up or. Yeah, um, actually, they felt like the whole the whole camper and the earth around them was brought into uh, this huge uh, like holding area. They uh, were then taken by white beings, which they describe in, in vivid detail and um, and uh, separated. Steve remembers literally grappling with them and of course uh, to no avail right uh they're examined and uh, again um this was traumatic particularly for uh, for the woman because again i would mentioned that uh, she'd gone through a, a a an awful experience as a child so they're both pinions on a, a chrome table and um you know, their reproductive organs are, are studied and probed and um, and their bodies are just like 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 a, like a scientist would dissect a frog. I mean, with that kind of just uh, dispassion, you know, and um, I don't know. I remember vividly a friend, a friend's father, who's a military guy. Uh, 
who uh, was well-to-do, self-made man, multimillionaire, self-made, a lot of pride, was, uh, was robbed. So he was hit over the head in New York and robbed of his wallet. And I remember hearing him talk about how humiliating that was to him. Mm -hmm. that, that really, it, it took him a long time to get over the helplessness someone feels when three guys jump you from behind, you know, hit you over the head, take your money and treat you like a thing. That's, that's, that's what they talked about, this humiliation, this um, desecration. It, it, and um, <clears throat> particularly for uh, Dawn, it, it was something that took a lot for the doctor. She didn't want to talk about it at all. So finally, um, uh, sobbing, screaming, as if reliving it, crying. Same with Steve. I mean, this is a, a, a 240-pound guy, six foot two, tough guy, sobbing. And finally just looks at the doctor and says, I want to go home. You know what I mean? So this isn't about fantasy. This isn't about money. This is just about two people that were traumatized. It's almost like a uh, like a rape experience in some ways. It's yeah. it's a it's a violation on think, a on a very I don't private think, and primal level. I don't think it's kind of like a rape thing. Well, I think, I, it, is, I think I, it is a yeah, rape I'm thing. I'm just using that as a phrase. But, I, I think no. I yeah. think I think it was. I think it's a form of rape. If mm -hmm. anything, well, it's certainly that, a violent assault. Yeah, um, you know, in some sense. But um, here's another thing from the transcript that might be of interest to you. Um, I was allowed, while they were under hypnosis, to ask a couple questions. So Dr. Annixer turns it over. Would you mind if Ron asked some questions? So Dawn answers no. So I said, Dawn, why do you think there are things you don't want to remember? And this was particularly about this sort of experience I just described. Um, I don't know. Is there something preventing you from sharing what you know? I can't tell you. If these beings are in contact with you, tell me what you know about them. God created our world in his image but not theirs or any of the others. Are there many different kinds of beings? Yes, different ones, different hybrids. When do you think this communication will happen between the aliens and humans? I don't know. In my lifetime, how long will you live, she retorted. In a normal man's lifetime, our children, she said at last. Are we watched as a population regularly? Yes, by many different kinds of beings. She finishes, sent on missions from the one supreme. What does that mean? There's one supreme being that controls all of them. He sends missions here. They're not here of their own accord. This is like a president or like a god, she responded with crackling directness. Wow, that's pretty interesting. That's um, I've, yeah. A lot of the reading uh, and things that I've heard says that humans really are a kind of a unique and almost an elite species within the within the you know universe i guess and sure. and that a lot of the um a lot of the other species are are sort of um jealous of us because we because one of the things is that we have a soul and that we have along with that we have an emotional makeup which which makes us apparently unique among you know, I'm not saying that we're not the, we're the only species that has that, but I think we're we're in a minority of, and that's one of the reasons why these ex, these people or these creatures are sent to Does, study us. But doesn't this also parallel a lot of biblical stories of, of fa fallen angels being jealous yeah, of us? Yeah, for... absolutely. It does. It does. And, and that's and, true. And, you know, that, that's the interesting thing, and this is why, again, I mean, 
uh, I think earlier in the, in the show, uh, someone had mentioned, you know, this is sort of up for grabs in terms of, of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Because you could look at it a couple ways. One is that when you delve into anybody's human beings, yours, mine, whatever, in, deep into your mind, there are archetypes. There are archetypes in your head from the way you were raised, the right. history of the, right. the culture, etc. And one of them certainly is uh, 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 satanic presence, angelic presence, God, um, you know, miracles, angels, things of that nature. So you wonder if someone, alien, were probing your brain, would they find that? Would whatever happens be put through that prism of archetypes so that when you saw these gremlin beings, you'd think of devils? Mm-hmm. When you saw a feminine presence, you would think of an angel or a Marian visitation. A struggle between good things and bad things. The other thing, so in other words, it's not really the way it is. It's the way your mind interprets it because of cultural uh, right. sure. signposts. That makes sense. On the other hand, maybe just literally, there is a moment-to-moment struggle for the souls of people between good and evil things. Norman Mailer has a quote that I end the book with. Here's what it is. It says, the devil might be a presence from another universe that wishes to take over our universe. We might be fighting an implacable enemy, and the devil might be the agent of that implacable enemy, with God as the tired general fighting that war with his own angels of hope. That's a great quote. It really is. It kind of says it all. That, um, that, I know. <clears throat> and, you know, so it, it, it is, it, it's a, on many, many levels, you know, in, in my view, and this is why I did the story. I mean, if it was just frankly, uh, all right, I was abducted by aliens, right. they probed me, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. I know about that. You know about that. Mm-hmm. This, this is very different. This is very complex. This is a very, very close view of something that's that's complex that that's so uh stated do you know what i mean no it's i know stated that you almost have to say this is real it's, it, it's too it, it's too full-blown it, not it, to be it, real and this, if you were going to invent a story i don't think this is the story you would invent it's almost too fantastic it really, excuse me, Eric, but I just want to. Sure, get, sure, sure. It really kind of speaks to the nature of existence, too. You know, what, what is existence about and, and what was really going on with these people? You know, were, were they chosen, like we said earlier, were they chosen to be the people to bring this message through? Exactly. In, in some sense, because I don't think uh, the communication is, is ne- you know, if these, if these beings are operating at a, on a totally different wavelength than us, either lower or higher, I don't know. But, um, or just different. Or just different. Yeah. Maybe these people are, are were chosen to be the communication for that. Well, you know, for, that's for very interesting message. because, again, I, you know, I, I'm not a particularly religious fellow. No, we're, if you think I'm about, not either. About but. biblical things, I mean, whether it's, I guess, what, uh, Ezekiel or Jeremiah or yes, whatever. Ezekiel. Yeah. All of these, these kinds of prophets, let's say, these are just ordinary people that have these experiences and they talk about them. And these are what make up the Bible. But, I mean, who's to say that in more modern terms that that 
that the Hesses in this story are, are kind of people that just, for whatever reason, were tapped on the shoulder and like, let me show you something. Yeah. And go tell the others about it. It has that feel. I think that one of the things that I, that fascinates me, of course, is obviously these this couple was chosen for whatever reason, reasons that I will probably never understand or or whatever. But the the thing is, is that I don't know if if you've li- if you if you listen to Art Bell when he was still doing Coast to Coast, he talked about something called the quickening. Whereas as time is progressing stranger and stranger things are happening at a much more rapid rate than ever before as if we're we're quickly approaching this moment in time where they just can't hide it anymore like an event horizon like an event horizon like like the government just cannot hide all any of this at all anymore and and that the full disclosure is going to happen whether or not the government wants it to or not. Do you think that we're quickly approaching like a like a moment like that? Like the- I, I do, and as I mentioned uh, before, it's in terms of the intensity and the uh, the uh, you know the public nature uh, of of these events. They're larger. They're watched by more people right now. I, I think if you ask, uh, let's say. 30 years ago, how many people believe that uh, that there are there are alien life forms and that the alien life forms have visited the Earth? Um, I, I think probably you'd have a number like 10%. If you ask that question today, just in these last 30 years, I think that number would be over 50%. So obviously something is going on. There is a kind of enlightenment that's that's going on a kind of vision that's coming into focus and um yeah well, what does that lead to it leads to a, a moment of enlightenment i think where let's call this a human experiment and that that the scientists the 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 gods the whatever are, are watching this human experiment and the human experiment has to do with free will and has to do with good and evil and maybe whether we blow ourselves up or not you know self-annihilate or not but one way or the other, I, whatever whatever this is leading to, I think quickening is a, is a very reasonable way to uh, put it. I think I also wanted to ask you, um, maybe this is kind of related or unrelated. We were talking earlier about the Phoenix Lights. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, that whoever was responsible for the Phoenix Lights, do you think that, that that was purposeful? Do you think that they did that for a reason? Like they flew their ship slowly over the city of Phoenix for a specific reason? Or, or, or do you think it was merely an accident on their part? What, what are your thoughts on the Phoenix Lights? I, no, I, I don't think it was an accident. And I think um, all of these things, as Dawn Hess says, are, are a calculated way to um, pull a curtain back uh, if, if slowly. Are there any other events that she has spoken about as, as far as their intention, their intentional introduction to the human race or I, I, and are you still in contact with them? Yeah, actually I, I, um, I have, I have been in contact with them for a while. I was not, but uh, over the last, um, I guess last two years, uh, we've been in contact, uh, yeah, frequently I'd say. Okay. But it, have they, I heard I heard the interview you did with uh, I think it was George Norrie on Coast to Coast and and, mm-hmm. and they, they seem like you know just 
pretty average people that huh, yeah. um, that just had this this amazing experience, you know. And and I do think there's more to it than they just happen to be sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time or or whatever. I you know, there's a lot of factors here. Like you said, the the Mojave is for some reason has great sacred. Um, resonance or something going on there or maybe it's because of the minerals that are there and they just you know they happen to be there but i don't think it was just pure coincidence i think there was there's something more to it that's part of a larger picture Um, i agree i I think just generally all of these things i think you know look at it as a mosaic i think that the hesses are uh you know a tile in the mosaic a large mosaic that uh that that hasn't quite been formed yet but but when the pieces are put together it will be a very clear picture, and I think it'll have a lot to do with uh, um, humanity's purpose on on Earth. I think if there's any question that people have, it's uh, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> what is this all yeah, about? Yeah, that's true. I think yeah. we all have right. that sort of question. What's what's Eric Fisk's purpose for being here on planet Earth? Is it just to do? The Metaphysical Connection podcast. I mean, <laughs> let's hope not. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is no. the most important work I've ever done in my life. Well, one of the one of the things we we hope to do is to bring this kind of information out forward to people. You know, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's one person or you know thirty thousand or, or however many listen to it, we we think that we're moving that paradigm. We're down helping the, down to the move the needle a bit. And, yeah, and and you know that's why we we appreciate you. You coming on today, Ron, and, and sharing this with I, us. I th- this is this is an amazing story. It really yeah. is one of the most intriguing stories coming. And this is you know this is coming from a guy who, you know, watched Twilight Zone when I was young, and and I've always been interested in this kind of stuff. So I, I've read a lot it. of these things, and I've experienced a lot of these things. And and this really is one of the most incredible stories that I've I've heard. And, which, and I think which, Eric probably agrees with it. Which leads me to another question, Ron. Have <clears throat> other people come forward to you and said, "Hey, I have a story that I want you to." tell yeah you know uh this uh, um i'm writing a a novel now just wrapping up a novel uh that that takes into account some of these things that we're discussing and um uh i do have people that come forward uh, quite often but this isn't something you know I, i look at this book as a book that i did because um i felt i had to you know what i mean i, yes. I felt somebody had to tell this story and so uh, it was a labor of love from that standpoint. And um, I, I, I probably will not do another book like this, but it's affected the way I view the world. It's affected the way I write and the things I write about. But I, I, think, I think that this was the piece in the mosaic I was able to contribute. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think I'll ever match this or do something better than this. And so this is this is my contribution. And that's the way I look at it. Well, I, I think it is it, it is a, uh, a viewpoint changer. And, and I think anybody who reads this story will not be will not view view things quite the same as they did before they read it. Yeah, um, that's that's the impression that I had from it. And I think that, you know, our listeners will will pick up on that too. And, and hopefully go out and buy your book and, and not, you know, not for the economic part of it for you, but for to get your message out. There. It's it's an important you know, story yeah, that needs to be yeah. told. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's called the Mojave incident. And, um, 
and uh, you know, available on Amazon, Amazon or mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble or any right, of the others. Right, right. But uh, no, it, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you guys. It was a, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was. I think a really good interview. I, I did want to try to get to your 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 latest novel. I think that that came out that has to do with the Fourth Reich. Has been <laughs> sort of the, uh, uh, ringing my bell. Uh, we we did a, actually did a show on that. So um, I know you I know you have a limited time frame today, so we we can't get to that. I guess, but maybe at some point we can do another show about that. But um, yeah, I, that's I, that's really interesting. I, I I was wondering why you chose that as the <clears throat> as the uh, the insidious force i guess that probably drives the story um well a lot of it has to do with uh, artificial intelligence and um, right all the and yeah. robotics and, and the like mm-hmm. which i mean are just taking massive leaps i was just just watching a report yesterday last night 40 percent of the jobs that exist today in the united states won't exist in 12 years because of robotics oh wow uh, isn't that an incredible? That you know, that's amazing. And frightening. It's an amazing fact. So, so there are a lot of social uh, implications to all of that, but there are also a lot of um, ethical uh, implications, and um, you know, with privacy uh, almost non-existent in this country at, at this point, right? And uh, with artificial intelligence, with uh, the uh, ability now of, of, of uh, not just to, to, like computers to spit out answers given problems and, and information to solve them, but literally where machines can think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it creates a new new world, and uh, that's what Dark Angel, my new book, is about. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got that on order, by the way. <laughs> that sounds really intriguing. We've done n- a number of shows about those very topics, yeah. AI and, and the implications of that and the Fourth Reich and how all that stuff got you know got rolling and so so it seems like a pretty intriguing uh storyline um why don't we just let ron get back to work and we will uh, promise uh, okay, to have okay, him okay, back on a okay, future okay. show yeah i, I can't i can't help myself <laughs> um uh so yeah anyway ron uh, we'll let you go we know you have limited time today so um yeah if we could maybe at some point get get back together again with you and sure talk about some of those other great books that you have out there um this this is an amazing story. I would I would highly encourage anybody that's even mildly interested in this topic to go out and, and get this book. And we're also going to have links to um, everything else associated right, with this, right, as far as right. your interviews on right. on YouTube and whatnot. Right. And we'll send you a link, Ron, to the, to the show so you can. Uh, Thanks so much. You know. All right. It, it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time. Your time as well. So. Thank okay. You very Thanks, much. Ron. Appreciate well, it. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Al Landrin is pioneering a brand new frontier of fandom and collecting, set decoration reproductions. Landrin Artifacts is the premier location to purchase wall reliefs that are inspired from the temple cave carvings seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark. His work also includes pedestals and stands for prop replicas. Al Landrin has several prints of his phenomenal artwork that's reminiscent of early H.R. Geiger's designs and traditional gothic horror images. When you see these products for the first time, you'll realize it's something you've always wanted, but can never express into words. Check out Landrin Artifacts, but be warned, after getting one, you'll have to have them all. Check out his webpage, LandrinArtifacts.com, or follow the link on our main page, TheFedoraChronicles.com. Battling daily whip fever? Sadly, there is no cure, only treatment. More whips. This podcast is brought to you by the Trinity Whip Company. 
proudly bringing you traditionally made kangaroo whips with top quality craftsmanship in form as well as function, handcrafted by Blake Brunning. You can find them at www.trinitywhipco.com and on the Metaphysical Connection main page. This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes, and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them, yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash fedorachronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on. That was good. <laughs>